Hello, wonderful people of the world, and welcome to season three of Go Out and Talk to Strangers. I'm Adi, the nomadic architect and the founder of The New Movement. It's an architectural design studio that designs one-of-a-kind, innovative and creative projects worldwide, using the built environment as a tool to help people thrive. During my world travels, I'm constantly meeting incredible people. People who are reshaping the way we live, work and connect. The reason I started this show is because I want to highlight the ones who are leading the way. This is the place where I host thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders of unique projects to share their stories and insights. I want to invite you to be part of the change. If you are looking for something bigger than yourself, if you also feel that we can do better, that standard is simply not good enough, you're in the right place. I hope you'll enjoy today's episode. And I'm very, very happy to welcome to the show, David Abraham. Hi, David. Hi, Adi. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. Okay, check out this guy's bio. It's incredible. And I hope I'm going to do you justice. Uh, so David is Outpost's co-founder and leads the team's co-living and co-working growth strategy. A remote worker himself for more than a decade, which is really impressive. He seeks to create communal destinations with a sense of belonging that allows him to do what he did. Find meaning while exploring new cultures while working. His career has spanned from Wall Street to the White House to Tokyo University. He is also an award-winning author on green technology and sustainability and led a non-profit that built clean water systems in Africa. Wow, David, <laughs> this is amazing. It's, it's a diverse background. It's a diverse background. It is. So let's, let us uh, tell to our listeners, the ones who doesn't know Outpost, what is it exactly? Sure. We're a, a network of, of live workspaces supporting a community of remote workers. And we have currently three destinations in Bali, Indonesia, and we just opened one in Sri Lanka. Mm. And uh, it's really exciting to, as we are in this, uh, I hope to say, beginning of a post-COVID environment. Fingers crossed. Uh, to see that people are really searching for Um, not to escape what they have, but really to belong to something new. And that's what was really uh, empowering for us, uh, us at Outpost. Amazing. Amazing. So how did it all start? So you're originally from the States? Correct. Correct. Originally from New York. From New York. So wh what, right. what brought you to Southeast Asia and how come you started this incredible project? Uh, I... I've always had a, uh, a strong affinity towards Indonesia. Uh, the first time I was there was in 1998. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was there, I was taken by the, the warmth of the people uh, throughout, throughout Indonesia, whether it was uh, Java or Sulawesi or Bali. And I wanted to make some type of career move uh, to Indonesia. I didn't know exactly what it was. And uh, in graduate school, I studied Southeast Asia. Uh, I spent a good bit of time in, in Japan throughout my life. And when I was writing a book back in 2013, I decided to kind of hold myself up in, in Bali to do, uh, and Jakarta, to do a bit of writing. And it was about that time during my travels while I was writing, I was working in a, 
in a cafe in Tokyo. It was 2012, I believe, uh, and was looking around and seeing a whole bunch of people working. And I knew what I was doing working in a cafe. I, I didn't have an office, but I saw all these other people who seemed like they should have an office nearby were doing some work. And it kind of dawned on me that if these people didn't have to be in the office to work, they didn't have to be in a cafe right next to the office, they could be anywhere. And uh, that anywhere for me was was a kind of a rice field in Bali. Mm. And so we set up a, a space for for professionals who are who are growing their career to be able to, to find a place uh, and a community to be a part of. Because what we've learned or what I've learned in my travels is that you can work from any desk, uh, you can work from any chair, uh, but what you really can't do is really sustain your soul if you're just looking for the physical environment. It's also that, uh, that, that communal environment uh, of, of people who share your values. Yeah, absolutely. So how was Bali back then? 2012, you said? Uh, 2012. The first time I was there was 1998. Uh, and, and when I was there, uh, it, 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 there were less people. Um, there was, <laughs> <laughs> to say that, there, it was an artistic uh, environment. People, it was, it was pre-Eat, uh, Pray, Love. Uh, so there wasn't that that <laughs> same overlay of of yoga. It was pre remote worker. Uh, the, it was um, a great space, a great place. But it's 2022, and it's still a great space, and it's still a great place. Uh, I think you, each each place um, evolves over time, um, but really the culture is what has endured in Bali, and it has always been a draw for most people. Yeah, it always has that magical atmosphere i don't know whenever you say bali i think people have that very vivid image of of nature of, of colors and people and yeah just to be even if for a moment apart from a distant culture i think that's an experience that we are seeking to have nowadays the more that the world is becoming global we want to go back to being global mm -hmm. which means to appreciate the uniqueness of of places and cultures and It could be such a beautiful experience to to spend some time there. Right. So, what is the average? Um, sorry, you're saying? Oh, it's, it's it's one of those places to use marketing language. It's 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 its own brand. Yeah. And it has that that those connotations may be slightly different to different people, uh, but it does speak to an attachment to to culture, an attachment to the environment. Um, a slowing down, an opportunity to meet to meet others, and to and to shape your worldview, and that's all kind of bundled into Bali, and and it was also one of the reasons why we chose that as our as our as kind of our, our launching pad. Mm -hmm. uh, so, how did you start? You just chose a place, uh, you built one. What was your first move? So you realized, okay, I want to set up a place here for people who are. Remote workers, uh, people who are free in mind and want to have a beautiful view of a rice field when they're working on their next book, like yourself. Okay, what was the first step? So we, it was my partner and I about 2012 when we started to have the idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were, were looking around for um, spaces that, that could inspire us. And also the reality of we didn't know what we were doing. Um, to, to have the, the arrogance or the confidence to say, I want to go to another country that I don't know the language very well. 
Uh, I don't know the culture. I don't know the legal and financial structures. And I want to set up a business there and I want it to be successful. It's a bit arrogant uh, because it's hard enough to start a business in your own country, but to do it in a different country. Uh, and fortunately, my partner and I had spent a, a bit of time in Asia and had at least an inkling to know what's going on. But you, you only know when you start. And so we started to look around for uh, the, the property. Uh, we look for a, a couple villas and, and a workspace. And uh, we were able to find that in, in 2015 after a, a, a couple of years. It was something we were doing on the side. He had his business and, and, um, and so did I. Uh, and it was something that we did as a side project, even after we opened. It was um, between when my book was finished and, and when it came out to the market, it's about nine months. And that's really when we set up the, the, the project. And it was supposed to always be a side project. And then about 2017, 18, we started to take it a bit more seriously. Uh, opened up a location, a pop-up location in Cambodia. Opened up another location in, in Bali. Uh, and, then, and then started to take things, like I said, more seriously right into right into a year and a half later and, and COVID. Yeah, that magical time <laughs> that we right. all remember. Right. <laughs> yeah. So when you were looking for that property, did you did you have something in mind or was it more like a gut feeling? What led you into deciding to take one property over the other? I think uh I mean we did it all wrong. Uh <laughs> this is these are the best stories, you know that, right? Right. Yeah, we uh, we looked for the the workspace and we found that, um, and we became very well known for providing a quality uh, a space to be productive. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was very important to me that the people who filled the space weren't the people um, who were just um, trying to figure out how to work remotely. It had to have a, a professional air to it. Uh, we wanted the people who were who were kind of doing it, were kind of making it, who were the the trailblazers. And it was fascinating to see some of the people that we would get, uh, people who 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 had um, rice plantations in um, in Brazil, um, and then people who set up large businesses in, in Cambodia. And it was a fascinating mix of folks who were who were coming in. Uh, but people didn't know us for our, our living, our accommodations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember it wasn't long after we opened, we were on one side of a, a ravine. Uh, and I was looking at the other side of the ravine and there was a 12-bedroom hotel there. Oh. And I remember thinking, I'm going to look back and say, that's really what Outpost should be. Uh, it should be a, a, a hotel-style environment. And... I wasn't exactly right. We weren't looking for a hotel style environment. Uh, we were looking for our own style environment that had the amenities and support of a, of a, of a hotel, the warmth of a, of a hostel and the services that people could um, rely upon and trust when they came out there that they could get some work done and, and wrap that all around of, of a community of travelers, of people who, who wander from, from Portugal to, to Bali to, to Brazil. Um, and that's that's where Outpost really is positioned now. Okay, that's beautiful. Can you share with us a challenge that you had to overcome? Oh, uh, you... <laughs> I, I bet there were many, like any business has. Yeah, I I, um, I, I think the the challenge that I've always had was um, 
I tend to be hyperlogical. If X happens, then then you should do Y to respond to X. And I would bring my uh, American sensibilities over to to Indonesia, and um, that doesn't always work. Um, it doesn't often work. And the way I, I look at it in Indonesia or Sri Lanka is that we have Indonesian or Sri Lankan challenges that need Indonesian and Sri Lankan solutions. And it's not always up to me to, to come on with my ideas of this is how we should solve the problem, but mm -hmm. it's how we can kind of chat, talk through any particular challenge that may be, whether it's um, construction work or, or getting people to show up, um, you know, ensuring that we have the right staffing on board um, because I, I miss things that that locals would pick up on far far more easily than I. There's some certain there's certain subtleties always. Interesting. Uh, like what, if you don't mind me asking? Sure. Uh, I, you know, there's um, I think any types of negotiations uh, that I've gotten into, mm -hmm. uh, I often want to get to the the numbers and the details first. And I've often learned in, in conversations, especially in Asia, that kind of that close the close the book moment and kind of stepping up and stepping away and saying, thank you very much. At that moment, that's when my ears have to be the most open, because that kind of by the way comment that they might say at the end is the comment they're most concerned about, um, mm. that all of the other 45 minutes of the meeting wasn't what they were concerned about. So, you know, it's, so negotiating for a property, um, you know, his, his real concern on, on the negotiation wasn't so much the, the, the price, um, but the initial amount of money that he wanted right away. And mm -hmm. so we could negotiate over the price and it could have gone further, you know, go further down. But if I were able to provide more money up front, that makes it easier for him. And, mm. and I was just focusing on price and he was focusing on kind of deposit. But he, I wouldn't have known that unless I waited till the very end, kind of that close that book moment and walk away when he when when that's when he mentioned the issue. So uh, uh, trying to understanding, yeah, understanding their style uh, and understanding um, that the most important thing may not be the first thing people talk about. Okay, that's a great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I have a friend that uh, I love that he calls uh, negotiation creative problem solving. Because it's always about <laughs> problem solving. And I'm sure, like the more creative you are, you can always find uh, the common grounds at the end. But it is interesting how in some cultures, people don't actually voice their concerns. You said you spent some time in Japan. That's a completely different culture when it comes to speaking up what you your needs are or what your concerns are. It is really interesting to see how we can tap into those and be, yeah, just as sensitive as we can to to understand the culturally background and subtext. Yeah, there's a, a lot of a lot of just being there and building up the relationship with people that is, uh, it's critical. I, I used to work in the, the Ministry of, of Economy and Trade in, in Japan. And, and when I left, I would keep in touch with my old colleagues. But when I would call them, I, I wasn't able to, to kind of get to the, the root of some of my questions. Uh, and I used to joke that it was 
far easier for me to go on kayak, to buy a plane ticket, to take the, take the flight, land in Tokyo, get a night room at the hotel, then set out for a two-hour meeting with the team, then go back home than it is for me to pick up the phone and get information. Wow. Uh, be- because of the level of, of trust and, and being there. And that uh, is something that's more unique to, to Asia now. I don't know how remote work changes that. Uh, it changes it fast in the in the U.S., but but in in Japan and Asia, there's always uh, a being there. You can't underestimate just showing up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in a way, you know, it's because we are wired to connect with other people, and if there's something that right now we're communicating through a video call. And uh, as much as I enjoy your smile and your facial expressions, I can see your body language and I can see your hands. And that's something that could affect how how trust is built. And yeah, sometimes, you know, an hour with someone in person could be worth, I don't know, like a month of, of calls. But at the same time, you know, me also as a remote worker, it's just incredible the 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 connections that you can form and the amount of inspiration that we can share using those platforms. So I guess like everything else is about the balance and finding the right hybrid for us. Exactly. Uh, we've, we've always, to me, you do need that in-person communication. Now, does it, what, what's that frequency of it? Now that's up to the, the, the individual uh, some people want to be in immersed in environment around people all of the time. Other people would be happy to come up once every three months and meet others. Now with remote work, uh, for us, our, our, we're seeing an increasing role uh, to support companies and teams that are, have historically been remote, but who want to come mm-hmm. together. And so our role there is to really support uh, and allow them to connect on a deeper level than they ever would have connected in, in the office. And so in this sense, that remote work uh, really creates even greater connections when you combine it with the actual uh, physical three days, 10 days you know, bonding experience, because then you're knowing people on a greater level than just the, the water cooler talk, if you will. So we think that that's a great opportunity of, of, of remote work to bring people together when you combine it to, with the physical environment. Yeah, absolutely. So those three, five, ten days experiences, how does it look like? For the teams that come out, uh, the three days are, are, are very fast. Uh, it's, it's more akin to, uh, you, you know, you're just landing and uh, you're meeting your team. You're having a happy hour with the team. Next day, it's, it's all kind of workshops. Uh, then the, final, the second day, the, 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 the second full day, is a uh, trip somewhere and then they're 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 returning home i feel that that's a, a bit of a rush uh, you're you're meeting a whole bunch of people uh the the 10-day experience where you can intersperse those types of things with uh meals at restaurants that you haven't been to you can foster some deeper conversations uh, you're also starting to work with people uh, so you're working alongside them as you would in office, but then you start to understand their their working style so that when you're seeing them remotely, you know a, a little bit more uh, about them and you can kind of visualize 
what their style is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found now through remote work, I know more about my team and my uh, also the, the partners that we have here at Outpost. Um, I know, <laughs> I mean, maybe too much information. I know when they sleep. <laughs> um, I know, I know who's an early riser and who's not. And uh, there's a there can be, and uh, I think in, in increasingly it's more important to to share more when you're restricted to all uh, all those things you were saying. You you can't see all of the movements in the body language, um, and that has to be made up somehow. And to me, uh, we've been you know as a as a remote uh, partially remote company uh, to be able to share more, so that there become less hidden uh, hidden spots. You know a little bit more about. Uh, people than you would uh, typically in an office. I think that's an important uh, role in, or important aspect of, of remote work to, m- to make it successful is to be able to see behind the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree. So do you think that now it's like we can see two trends, right? If you look at it, the bigger picture, right? So, so many people that before the pandemic said, oh, I wish I could do what you do, right? I wish I could work remotely. Now they can work remotely. They had to, they had no other choice, but now then everyone can work remotely and they had experience working from home. They felt so lonely and craved human interaction because they weren't hanging out in cafes and co-working spaces. They were just like isolated in their apartment, which is not a good experience. Just seek to find that human interaction again, creative teams reporting that you know, some of their best ideas, they don't happen on the actual meetings. They happen when you go and make coffee or you, you know, go out for a smoke or all those little moments. So we see those two phenomena trying to exist kind of like simultaneously. What is your view on that? Well, I think that there's the uh, people want control and they want to have control over their work environment the times when they're working, uh, not necessarily control of the exact amount of hours that they work. There, people, I think, are dedicated often to their role, uh, but they want to have the determination of when they're going to sit in traffic or when they're going to do X, Y, or Z. And then there's that competing need for, I think it's a competing need for belonging. Because when you want to belong to something, you can't always be as individual and controlling. You have to be able to support uh, whatever group you're in, religious group or political group or even a friend, a friendship group. You, you can't just say, I don't want to go out tonight. And sorry, yeah, you know, I know you guys were waiting for me, but I'm not going to go out tonight. Mm-hmm. You can't do that too many times without atrophying your relationships with people. So you have this, uh, this, this need to belong. And I think uh, through COVID, what you've seen is that hasn't been able to have been met because they're not going to an office, they're not going to church, they're not, you know, the, the, the sense of communities have kind of atrophied. Um, but yet people also want control. So because they want to determine what they're doing and when they're doing it. So mm-hmm. remote work has this great promise is that, oh, I can control where I'm going to spend my time, who I'm going to do it with. And but then you lose that sense of, well, what do I belong to? And so I think what we see in this great resignation is these two things kind of competing against each other. One, people are saying, I don't, I want more control over my life. I don't like the type of job that I'm doing. I want to belong to something, but I don't know exactly what I want to belong to. 
So people are pretty good at deciding when to leave. The question is, is what do they then belong to? And I think we're coming to this kind of societal reckoning um, where there's a mass bunch of people who are deciding what do they really want to belong to. That's so correct. And I, I also feel it personally, right? After maybe five years of nonstop one-way travel to different destinations, obviously I'm part of that global community of nomads, of change makers that we keep seeing each other in different cities and places around the world, usually when it's summer. <laughs> But also, you know, you have that thought of where do I belong? Where can I call home? And does it have to be a physical space or could it be a, a mindset or a movement or a set of values that I identify with? To me, it's a community is about rooted in in space that there has to be some type of space where people meet up to have that community you know there are communities that are just online but mm -hmm. communities that you can opt in and opt out of isn't really uh, the stronger communities have friction costs to join um, you're you think about uh, bad examples but fraternities or, or going to university you have to have certain qualifications to get in or you have to go through certain types of rituals and and those I feel are, are stronger and um, then when you leave there there should be some kind of friction cost whether it's you're feeling like oh I, I'm not being able to support the community but when you can kind of opt in with a like and opt out with a like then the community itself isn't isn't as strong And not saying that every community has to be uh, cult-like, uh, but I feel that the ones that have initiation processes and, and, and call on their people to do something, to contribute, um, are, are stronger. And that strength is only enhanced by being phys in physical proximity to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so talking about contributing... Can we talk about that Uganda project of yours? Because I'm, I'm also really curious about that. Sure. What led you into starting that project? And yeah, like I, I'm speechless. Tell me. <laughs> sure. Uh, my, my friend Ben uh, served in the U.S. military in Uganda. And his role was in civil affairs. And civil affairs role is to build infrastructure at that time. So this was about 2006. And he was building roads, uh, bridges, water wells. And he was very taken about, taken back about how uh, the water wells could really contribute to a healthier uh, community, um, especially for people who were overwhelmed by circumstances beyond their control. And so when he came back to the U.S., he, he obviously didn't have the budget that he had in the U.S. military to roll out water wells. Uh, but he started collecting some funds and, and sending them over to, um, to Uganda through the, the connections that he had. So I, I joined him uh, in his effort. In about 2008, he went over uh, to Afghanistan uh, because his unit was going there. And, and he decided that he was part of the team and, and had to go. And when he was over there, he was killed in action. Uh, And so the company, it's a nonprofit that he started, started gaining more attention. And I had some work and I had done work in development uh, previously. So I decided to take a bit of time off from the work that I was doing and uh, 
to be able to set up the organization on the ground in Uganda. Um, he wasn't, the, the organization was smaller before he had, had passed, but it had gotten some media attention. So we, we needed to set up some operations out there. So I went out to Uganda uh, to be able to set up those operations and to, to kind of honor his, his legacy. So that's how I got into uh, clean water. I'm proud of the work that, that's been done. I, I think I'm most proud of uh, the, the, the people that we worked with on a day-to-day basis, and hopefully we're able to pass them skills um, that will be able to affect their country. And I'm talking about more of the, the team members we had. Obviously, the water projects, I hope, are, are still working and, and successful. Mm-hmm. They're notoriously difficult to, 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 to ensure sustainability on. But I think the one thing that I, I hope is that um, we've empowered a, a certain number of people in, in northern Uganda that we work with, with the skills to, to, and to empower others that, that they work with. Mm. And, and, well, first of all, thank you for sharing. It's, it's really, it's a touching story. And um, I can imagine your friend is very proud of what you did. I think whenever we're trying to do something that has a positive impact on the environment, it's not only, it's not only enough to, you know, to build houses, but then people don't have a way to make a living, but it's also to give them actual skills and tools to maintain, let's say you started this project. So saying that people could continue even after you moved on to, to something different, that's really significant. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Well, I, I hope I hope so. But I, was he just to clarify? He started the project. Yeah, uh, it was his yeah his his efforts. Um, I just I, I came on board for a little bit to 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 pass it on to someone else who could who could continue. Mm-hmm. I think we often forget that we're really privileged that that we have the opportunity to work remotely. I mean, it's. The, the, the minimum needs to work remotely are a laptop, uh, stable electricity, access to relative reliable internet, and to have a service and to have a kind of a, a, a type of service job. That's not most of the world. That's not how people live. We have a privilege to decide that we work remotely, that we don't have to grow our own food. And, and if we even think that remote work is an option, we should realize that we're blessed with that opportunity. If we're blessed with the opportunity to, to co-live and that we're not forced to live with others, that we can decide who we live with, that that's a blessing as well. So I think too often that we, we, you know, we, we don't like our job and we can leave. And again, that's another blessing that you have that opportunity. So it might feel like there's a whole bunch of pressure being put on you and you can't choose your, your exact lifestyle. But remember that you, you do have some choice and that should take some comfort for you is that because many people can't. And I remember thinking, uh, when I met, when I was in, it was in Changu in, in Bali and I was at a cafe and it was about one o'clock in the afternoon. And a, and, a, and a gentleman, I guess around 23 or 24, was, was having a beer with someone. And he, he, he was basically saying everyone should be able to work remotely. If you're not working remotely, then what kind of life are you leading? You know, you can choose to live remotely. And I think he was speaking to his, 
his driver at the time. And it just made me think as he was having a sip of that, that beer, the person who was on that factory line didn't have a choice to, to work remotely. The person who was making his Cuban sandwich um, didn't have the choice to phone that in. Um, the driver that he um, was using to, to ferry him around Bali didn't have a choice to, to do that either. And for most people, they don't have that luxury to sit back at 1 p.m. and say everyone should work remotely. So uh, I, I think that's um, why I feel lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's I think it's more than working remotely. I think it's more about uh, having some sort of choice. We were raised to believe that there is only one way of doing things where you look around and you say, OK, these are my options. And I guess for me and probably also for you, meeting so many people from all over the world, kind of like enlarging the scope of what's possible. This is the real benefit of working remotely. It's more than having the freedom to be in different countries or choose the season that you want to live in. It's more about knowing what's out there and how many options are there. And yes, we are very blessed to be able to live like this, but having a choice of how am I going to live my life? I think that's something that probably anyone can have and they don't have to even own a laptop or hop on a plane. It's more about keeping in mind that there are more options that we see. Yeah, I think that uh, on, on one spectrum, you have poverty, which is really a, a lack of choice. Yeah. And then there's paralysis when you have too much choice. Yeah. And you're stuck because you can't decide where to go. And so somewhere in there, when you can start to rule out choice, you're better off and then to be fortunate enough to not have to, 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 to have a choice. So somewhere in there yeah. is, is the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's less than we think, right? We don't have to own so much. We don't have to have really big houses and big, and many cars or I don't know, other external symbols of success it's more about what makes me happy how can i share my gifts with the world how can i really make an impact and do something that i find meaningful this is through wealth when you're able to do that correct uh okay so we're coming to an end and before we close this episode i have one question that i ask all my guests it's called the wild napkin so imagine uh you go into a bar and you have a couple of drinks and your mind is really free. And all of a sudden you have the craziest idea, but all you have is a napkin. So you write it down and the next day you find it in your pocket. What does it say? The craziest idea? Yeah, there's no time, no budget limit. Everything is possible. Craziest idea. It says right. Right? W-R-I-T-E. It probably says right. Um, it's what I once did, writing a book. Um, and I think when I write, I start to free myself up to think of the ideas that are, that are ready to come. So the inspiration would be from writing. Um, so I, I don't know what that inspiration actually is, but I often find that my ideas come out when I start to write. So I write to think. Mm. Okay, so you, so you have to write another napkin to get to the crazy idea. <laughs> That's what you're saying. <laughs> right, right. I, I, yes, I mean, I, I, 
there are there are all kinds of crazy ideas mm-hmm. um, that are that are that are brewing in my head. Um, but I, I find that if I, I I write down and I think and I hone, that's when the idea crystallizes. So if if I were to just do it and have a few drinks, I would just tell myself to write. Um, the challenge is, I used to do exactly what you would say. I would be out and I would write, and I remember writing on my hand something that I was important. And then I would go to the gym and then lo and behold, <laughs> the idea is gone. Um, but, uh, so, so, or, or I would write in small pieces of paper and then, and then I look at the paper the next day and it wouldn't make sense to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would happen, that would happen when I would travel and do research. But, uh, anyhow. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for sharing. Okay. So anyone, if you want to, develop an interesting idea, David's advice is write about it. Just brainstorm and see how that goes. Anyone who want to follow you and Outpost's activities, the best way to connect with you would be on Instagram and Facebook. Is that right? Yes. I'm de- or yes, our website is destinationoutpost.co. Our Instagram is, is yes, Destination Outpost. Amazing. I'm, I'm also going to put the links in the show notes. And I want to thank you again for being my guest today and sharing your beautiful story and insights with us. Thanks, David. Thank you for having me, Adi. It was my pleasure. And until the next time, everyone, go out and talk to strangers. Thank you very much. Hi again. I hope you liked today's episode. If you learned something new, make sure to pay it forward and share it with someone in your network that might like it as well. Follow the show and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you have a thought or a question regarding today's episode, go to the New Movement website. That's www.thenewmvt.com and use the contact form to leave us a comment. Thank you for being part of the change. I'll see you next time.